0: Romans two twelve through 29 this morning as we come to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do again ask you to bless the preaching of your Word. We pray that every word that is spoken and proclaimed would accord with the truth of Scripture. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, would be heard and would be seen by faith, and that, Lord Jesus, you would be um, calling and drawing and that you would increase our love for you and that you would show us your glory and that father we would find him to be altogether lovely and that you would make us to feel deeply our need for him that you would convict us of sin and that you would magnify your grace in the gospel of our lord jesus christ lord jesus we pray that you would minister to us through the scriptures today we cast ourselves on you we pray these things in your name amen Uh, Romans 12 beginning, I'm sorry, Romans 2 beginning in verse 12. There the apostle Paul picking up on this argument that Jews who had the law but weren't trusting Christ and condemned people out in the world for living like people out in the world do because that's how people in the world live. And now Paul addressing the Jews and the hypocrisy of the Jews says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the deeds of the law, is probably a better translation, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the works of the law written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, that's everybody that's not Jewish in this period in the first century, but from God. This ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, I think it's safe to say that if we had this morning two completely unrelated people and we set them before the watching world, one of them, a woman who grew up in church, who had loads of scripture memorized, who almost never missed a Lord's day, who tithed, who was committed to ministry in the church and was her whole life was caught up in the church. And even a church that was faithful in preaching God's word. And we had that woman and we set her before the watching world. And then we had a man who had never been to church and had never heard the scriptures and who grew up completely pagan, completely out in the world, living like he was out in the world, never heard anything of God's truth whatsoever. And we set those two people before the watching world and we said... To everybody in the watching world if there is such a place as heaven and hell if there is a heaven and a hell where do you think these two individuals would end up and i think if we asked the watching world what they thought about this religious woman and where she would go and this irreligious man and where he would go the world would probably say both of those people would go to heaven if there's a heaven and a hell. They would both go to heaven because she was sincere and religious, and she had given her whole life to being in the church, and serving in the church, and giving of her time, and her money, and she would go to heaven, and he would go to heaven too because he never heard anything, and he didn't have a chance. I think most people in the world, and in fact, I would probably not be surprised if a lot of people, even in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, might say that about one or the other of those people and yet the apostle Paul says neither of those people go to heaven and the passage before us is one of the most sobering passages in all the bible because what Paul is going to say is there is no partiality whether it is a religious person who has had all the instruction, all the upbringing, all the means that God has appointed to reveal his truth, or a person who has never heard anything, has never ever had anybody share anything with him about the truth of the gospel, both of those people fall under the judgment of God because neither of those people are in Jesus Christ. And that makes the world unbelievably angry to hear that. And yet the Apostle Paul is going to say, for you and for me to see our need for Jesus, we need to come to terms with that. And for you to come off of your self-righteousness, and for me to come off of my self-righteousness, and for you to come off of your lawlessness, and for me to come off of my lawlessness, we need to hear every single syllable uttered in Romans 2, 12 to 29. Well, notice Paul has been he has been taking up that argument um, that the Jews thought they were better. They thought we have the law, we're Jews. Actually, their first argument is we're Jews. We're not like these Gentiles. We grew up in the church. We're different. We don't hang out with them. We don't do what they do. We're not like them. And Paul has already really dealt with the hypocrisy of the Jews holding on to, we are better. We go to a better church. We're better than these people out here. And Paul has said, You don't get to do that. Nobody's better. You're inexcusable. Whoever you are who judge because you do the same things. That's everybody. If you try to reduce this down and you say, well, Paul's talking to Jews and I'm not a Jew, you are seriously missing the point. You know, Sinclair Ferguson said, and it was striking to me, he said, especially in conservative Evangelical churches when someone comes in to speak and they they talk about everything wrong With the world and with other churches You can see the the approval on the faces of the people you see the head nodding and the um, You see the um, You see the delight almost in that and then On those rare occasions when a minister of the gospel comes in and he says, this is what's wrong with the evangelical church and this is what's wrong with our church, you see the anger. You see the anger. I think the Apostle Paul is doing something of that to leave us uncomfortable. And he's going to do something today. He's going to actually take up the argument. He's going to continue what he began in verses 1 through 11. He's going to carry it down. And the first thing he's going to say is, and you'll see this in verse 11, God shows no partiality. That's Paul's big argument, is God does not show partiality. Not that God doesn't show partiality to them. God God doesn't show partiality to you. God doesn't show partiality to you. God doesn't show partiality to me. That's what Paul's taking up. And Paul is saying here, in, as he unpacks this, that there's no partiality on Judgment Day. And there in verses 12 through 16, what he's going to do is take up the, Jew, the Jewish second argument, which is we have the word of God. We're not like these Gentiles because we're Jewish, 1 through 11. We're not like these people out here because we have God's word. We're in a good church. We have the scriptures. Our pastor preaches the scriptures, and I'm obviously contextualizing this to our time. Our pastor preaches the scriptures. We have the Bible. We're not like these people out here. We're not like these people in these other churches. And Paul says, look, the Jews who had the law, who had... Um, All of God's revealed will given to them through Moses on Sinai. They had all the privileges. They had all the word of God. They were taught about the sacrificial system. They were taught about temple worship. They were taught about the coming redeemer. They were taught all of God's commandments. They were given the entire, and Paul's going to say this in verse 20, embodiment of knowledge and truth. Here is the totality. Here, you want truth? Here's truth. And they had that, and yet Paul says in verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. If, if you are trusting in your knowledge of God's revealed will, and, and Paul is going to say in chapter 3, everybody sinned, nobody does good, nobody's righteous. If you are trusting in the privilege of having God's word, you are without excuse and you're going to be judged by that. And in fact, I think there is a deduction here where Paul is basically saying it's actually going to be worse. Jesus said this, that it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. We love to point out Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like America's like Sodom and Gomorrah now. Well, Jesus said the, the church of his day in Israel was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because they had the Word of God, they had all the light, they had Jesus Christ, and they rejected it. They trusted in themselves. They were self-seeking. Notice, here's the big problem. Notice this, that what Paul tells us all the way back in verse 8, notice this. What's the big problem in the heart? What's going on in the hearts and the minds of people who think they're better than other people because they have some kind of religious privilege? Notice what he says. He says there, to those who are self-seeking. To those who are self-seeking, the greatest greatest problem in a heart that is self-righteous is that it's self-seeking. The mark mark of a self-righteous person is that they are self-seeking. The mark of a person who has had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them is that they are Christ-seeking. That's the difference. Self-seeking, Christ-seeking. And, and Paul is dealing with this issue, and yet there's this sense when he's dealing with this, Paul is the master, he is the master at shepherding people wisely. I had a pastor when I was a young Christian It used to drive me crazy. I was on this huge learning curve, and anytime I'd go to him, his name was Charlie, I'd say, Charlie, check this out, boom, 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 boom. I'd show him something in the word, rattle it off, and Charlie would always say, well, don't forget about this. And he would always give me the other biblical truths over here. And then I'd go over here and I'd be like, Charlie, you were right. I saw that. And well, let's not forget about this. And Charlie always did that. And one day my buddies and I figured out what Charlie was doing. He was doing the very thing Paul's doing. He was not letting us swing the pendulum one way or the other. So lest... The Jews think, okay, it's going to be worse for us. Paul's telling us there's going to be judgment according to the law because we have the law. What are you saying, Paul, that the, those Gentiles that didn't have the law, they're not going to be judged? Is that what you're saying? No judgment because they didn't have the law. And notice what Paul says there. He says, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, Paul's argument is not easy. And what he does in verse 13 is very difficult. I think he is not at this point telling anybody how they are to be justified. you got to get that. Paul is not at this point telling anybody how they're to be justified. He'll get to that in 321. He's already told us that in 116. He'll get to that in 321. Right now, Paul is dealing with the issue of people who are far from God in the world, Gentiles, that's what we are by nature, and then the visible church of God, here in this context, the Jews who had the law of God, who were trusting in it, and Paul is saying, neither get justification. Neither the religious woman, nor the irreligious man, if they're not in Jesus Christ, neither of them get justification. And, and when Paul addresses the Jew who had the law, who had the word of God, preached every sabbath in the synagogues and they heard sermon after sermon after sermon and they read the law to their little children and when he addresses them this is what he says to them in verse 13 it is not the hearers of the law who are just before god but the doers of the law who will be justified now paul is not saying giddy up get working so that you can be accepted I don't think Paul's saying that at all in verse 13. It would go against everything Paul says in the rest of the book. So he's not saying, get working, get doing, doers of the law will be justified. What he's doing is he's he's taking up the Jewish argument that we have the law, therefore we're better in the sight of God. And so what Paul is saying is, don't you know, if justification were by your deeds of the law, by your good works, if it was by that... You would have to do the law, and you would have to do all of it, and you would have to do it perfectly, because that's what the law demanded. Paul will say that in Galatians 3.10. He will functionally say it in Romans 10.4. He will say it in several other places, quoting out of Deuteronomy. Even in the law, it said, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. So Paul's saying, listen, if you trusting in your own works who are self-seeking, who are seeking self-justification, who think you're better than other people because of some religious privilege you've been giving, you're so mistaken because you don't even know what the law demands. The law demands obedience, perfect obedience. And so Paul takes up that argument and then notice what he does in verse 14. He now balances it out again and and he leaves the Jewish objection over here and now he turns to the Gentiles and essentially answers the question, well, why are the Gentiles going to fall under the judgment of God if they've not heard the gospel? You know, usually when people have said to me, what about the guy on the deserted island who's never heard the gospel? I usually say two things. First, he's probably a cannibal. He's not a good person think about that I think it gets funnier when you think of it it's not funny initially it's probably a cannibal um, and then secondly what about you what about you who have heard the gospel that's that's a very clever way to push the attention away from me what about that guy how's that fair what about you what about me how am I responding to the message of Christ crucified. And so Paul here is now taking up the argument about the Gentiles in, in a very complicated yet helpful section. He says in verse 14, Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accusing or even excusing them. Now, Here's what I think Paul's saying, and I've spent years and years and years thinking about these verses in particular. I think Paul is saying that we are all made in Adam, and because we're all from Adam, that means that God's moral obligations, what we would call the Ten Commandments now, were imprinted on the constitution of Adam as an image bearer of God. So Adam would have known It's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to commit idolatry. If Adam had cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, made a bat, and killed Eve, that would have been murder. If Adam had cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, carved an idol, bowed down to it, that would have been idolatry. Yes, I know, God did not give the Ten Commandments explicitly to Adam, he gave him one, but all of that was written on Adam's heart. And that means everybody, Jew or Gentile, because everybody comes from Adam, they all have a sense of, of what is right and wrong. Now, they're going to suppress that. They're going to take the batteries out of the smoke detector. But even in pagan societies, there is some sense of justice. There's some sense that adultery is wrong. Even in our very backward society today, um, those who commit adultery in many states are punished because of that monetarily. There's some sense that was unjust. There's some sense of rightness and wrongness. There's some sense in societies that Murderers need to be dealt with in some way. There is is a sense of what the law requires, and there are times when unbelievers, out of a sense of obligation, seek to live accordingly, though very imperfectly, and there are many times that they live completely opposite to it, and then they incur civil punishment because of it. Now, I think what Paul is saying is, look, even though all the nations outside of Israel didn't have God give them his written word, his law at Sinai, they all know, they all know to some sense that there is a law, that there are moral and ethical standards. And so Paul, I think, is saying that in itself shows that they are not without law in that sense. Because they have the law and notice this, what he says, they have the works of the law written on their hearts. And then notice what he says in verse 15, their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. Now I could preach a whole series on conscience. You have a conscience. You probably don't even know what it is. Conscience is hard to describe. It means with knowledge, con science, with knowledge, everybody's been created with some sense of internal moral rightness and wrongness. The Bible says a lot about conscience. What Paul says here is that even the Gentiles who didn't have any religious privileges, they have a conscience, and their conscience, when they do wrong, either convicts them and leaves them feeling guilty. That's when we do wrong and we feel guilty. That's our conscience. Or they excuse their actions to quiet their conscience. That's the way they try to deal with it. But even that is a proof that they have some knowledge of the works of the law written on their hearts. And that's why on judgment day, they're without excuse. Jews are without excuse and will be judged by the explicit law that they had. Gentiles are without excuse and will be judged because they had the works of the law written on their heart. Nobody escapes their creatureliness. Nobody escapes their moral obligation to God. Now, secondly, Paul tells us In verses 17 to 24, he takes up the argument again with the Jew. He goes back. He's doing that pastoral thing. We have dealt with the Gentiles. Now we're going back to the unbelieving Jews. And notice what he says there. You call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You boast in God. You know his will. You approve of what is excellent. You are instructed in the law. You're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. They were Sunday school teachers. They were pastors. It's hard not to be convicted when you read this, especially when you're in a teaching role, that number one, you're held to a higher standard, James says, let not many of you be teachers. Um, The Jewish people believe that they were called by God and set apart by God to teach everybody what to do. And yet Paul's going to say in the following verses that they didn't do the very things they told people not to do. So, their whole Sunday school lesson was, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and they didn't do it. There was no gospel. There was no offer of salvation, mercy, grace. There was no holding forth of Jesus Christ. There was simply, I'll tell you what you need to do, and yet my life doesn't reflect that. And let me say this, that this is sort of an aside. It is a very dangerous place to be when we tell other people God's will, according to the scripture, but our life is not reflecting that we're in accord with what we tell them. If, if, you, if you are in any kind of teaching role or, you know, even conversations on social media, and you're telling people oughtness, biblical oughtness, what we ought to do, and your life is not characteristic, That's hypocrisy. That falls under everything that Paul is battling here. And in fact, it's so important. Notice what Paul says in verse 24. Because yes, it affects your standing before God if if you're not in Christ and you're living in hypocrisy. But number two, it affects your witness to the world. Notice verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is blasphemed. Let me contextualize this. The name of God is blasphemed among your pagan neighbors because of your hypocrisy. Martin Luther Jones said in a very short and I think very potent way about this verse, the world is watching. The world is watching you to see whether your life accords with the gospel you believe, whether your life accords with what you say is right and wrong. And, and listen, here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake in all of this. Number one, when you realize that you have been inconsistent and all of us have been inconsistent morally, yes, yes, all of us have been inconsistent, then you go to Jesus for mercy and grace and acceptance and you rest in him. When you don't do that, your eternal well-being is in the balance. Horizontally, your witness to the world and your effectiveness in the world is at stake. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, first of all, judgment for everybody who is trusting in what they do or who is doing whatever they want to do. Loss of witness to everyone around you. Um, I know there are a lot of people that would come into this church that would not like the things they heard and could certainly pick apart what we don't have. I get that. I do often wonder how unbelievers coming in would be welcomed, received, treated, looked at. And I don't mean the dignified people that you wish were Christians and in here with you. I mean, I mean the lesbians in Savannah. That's who I mean. How 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 would we interact if they were coming in here? Um, I think Paul has a lot of that in view in verse twenty-four. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, I think I've told you the story before. I was working at. Um, this restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina, and there was this guy I liked a lot. I was a new Christian. I was like two years converted and and had come out, you know, come out of great darkness. And he reminded me a lot of what I was like when I was unconverted. And I always had sort of an affinity for people that, you know, wanting to see them, wanting them to know the grace I had known. And and I remember I would talk to him a lot and um, and sort of try to pursue friendship with him for the gospel. And he found out that I was in seminary, and um, I'll never forget, he said to me, um, he said to me, hey, you're a Christian, you're in seminary. He's like, I'm going to be watching you like a hawk. He said, I'm going to be watching you like a hawk, I said. I said, uh, you know, Jesus said that. He said, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. I said, good looking out, Hawkeye. <laughs> um There is a sense where you have to realize that people that you don't realize, they're watching you. And they, not just God, but others, are summing up what we say, how we respond, how we live. And only a heart that has been sanctified in Christ, only a heart that is broken and humble, only a heart that's willing to admit its faults and say, you know, I have been inconsistent at times, and that's why I need a savior, Only a heart that can say, this is what God wants, and I want to please him, and I want to walk in humility before him. I can only do that because of Jesus Christ. Only that heart, no matter how many times they put their eyes on you to try to find something that you're doing to make you look inconsistent, only that redeemed heart will stand the test, and it will be a powerful witness. It will be a powerful witness. Thirdly, and finally... Paul takes up the issue of ritualism in verses 25 through 29. And notice there, and obviously some difficult language he uses, but he says here, circumcision is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, one of the things that the Jews did, they didn't just say, we have the word of God. They said, we're Jews. We have the covenant sign. And and if we contextualize that, I'm baptized. I was baptized as a child, I was baptized as an adult, I'm baptized, I'm baptized, and they then trust in their privileges, they trust in their covenant membership, they trusted in being set apart by God covenantally, they trusted in that, and what Paul basically says to them is, and and I think it's really important for us to get this, because ritualism and you may not think you could fall into this because we don't have smells and bells at New Covenant we try to keep those as far away from you as we can so you don't we don't want to encourage ritualism and formalism we don't want to we don't want you to think just because we do this and this and this and external religion you're good that's what the Jews did and we're always in danger of doing that let me read to you this quote by um by uh, Robert Murray McShane. I love this quote. He says, Formality is perhaps the most besetting sin of the human mind. I've had conversations with people in this church, and I know that's never come up. When we talk about besetting sins, that's never one of them. I think McShane is right. Formality, just going through religious motions, trusting in how we do things, trusting in pomp and externals, is one of the most besetting sins of the human mind. Listen to this. It is found in every bosom. It reigns triumphant in every natural mind, and this is the line that got me. It constantly tries to reusurp the throne in the heart of every child of God. It constantly tries to reusurp the throne in the heart of every child of God. That means Going through the motions, trusting in where you go to church, trusting in what your church does in worship, trusting in those things. If you don't think you can do that, you are in a very scary place. Formalism is a besetting sin. It's only conquered, by the way, it's only conquered by the Spirit of God. Notice what Paul says um, in verse 29. A Jew is one inwardly, that means everybody who is Um, has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, is a true Jew. You and me, we're true Jews. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It is a reliance on the third person of the Godhead. It is a reliance on the, the Spirit of Christ to change the heart. It is a reliance on the Holy Spirit to worship. You know, I was praying this morning as I came to worship, and I I was asking the Lord to prepare my heart to worship him as I preached and as I led. And I thought back to years ago how how many sweet times I had of praying um, that the Lord would prepare my heart to worship him. In faith, in repentance, in dependence on the Holy Spirit, in delighting in his word and listening attentively and singing with grace in my heart as unto him. And then, and lately I've been convicted of this, how many times it's just a sort of, okay, got to go to church. Got to go, got to get this done, got to be ready for this, got to do this, this, then this, then this, then this, then we're off to lunch, we're out. And I think when the Holy Spirit is in the act of changing us and sanctifying us in worship, we stop thinking about everything merely in externals, in space and time categories. We forget about the time. We would love if we could just worship God together with his people all day long. Not in emotionalism. Not some cheap imitation emotionalism. In a Holy Spirit, heart-preparing, scripture-saturated, gospel-empowered sort of way. And when that happens, it is the sweetest thing in the world. There was a, I'll close with this story. um, Because I actually think a lot of evangelicals fall in verse 25 through 29 and don't really realize it. We often think Anglo-Catholics, smells and bells. Roman Catholicism, smells and bells. And, And that's an easy target. But I think whenever people are not delighting in worship, when they're not delighting on a Lord's Day, by Lord's Day, delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ, delighting in worshiping him, that it shows actually that we've fallen into a formalism. And then when we fall into a formalism, it actually becomes kind of burdensome, but we trust it. It's like, I went to church today. I'm okay. Um, Many years ago, I went to a thousand person plus church um, and Super Bowl Sunday came up. And there were like a hundred people there that Sunday night. And I'll never forget the pastor, who was not a great preacher at all, and I usually never benefited from his preaching, saying to those of us that were there, you know, I really believe God is going to bless you for having hearts that long to worship the Lord. You know, knowing that most of us that were there were really eager to be there. We were eager to be there. And I'll never forget leaving that service and knowing God had met with me and that in some way I was changed and carried along from one degree of glory to another just by being at that service. Now, I don't say that to try to guilt you into anything. I say that because that's a reality. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly. Circumcision is not outward in the flesh. It's in the heart. It's in the spirit whose praise is not from men, from God. I'm going to close with these questions to you. One, when you think about your beliefs and commitments, and I hope they're in in accord fully with scripture, are you trusting in those things? And that's that's a hard question to answer. That's not an easy question to answer. That takes deep self-examination to say, and I will tell you this, One of the ways that you can know whether you're trusting in those things or not is how you treat other people. Remember what Paul said, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Are you harsh towards others? Are you short with others? Do you complain about others a lot? Or do you extend grace to others? In a biblical sense, do you extend grace to people? Do you live by grace? Does your life reflect a pursuit of holiness And then when you fall, a humility and a meekness. Um, I think the Lord would have us ask those questions. I would also ask you when you examine your life, and especially as we come together to worship, um, is there an eagerness to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus? Is there a desire for God to see your joy and gladness and praise and brokenness and repentance in your heart? Before him or is there some sense that others are watching and and they're going to see me here or They're not going to see me here. And and that's what matters most. Paul says whose praise is from God and not from men Finally, I'm going to ask you because honestly um, I don't know how you read a passage like this and you don't come away utterly convicted Um, When Paul says, to those who are self-seeking, who in this room has not been self-seeking? There has been one person in all of human history who was never self-seeking, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one person who always did the will of his Father. There's one person who was justified by doing the law, and that was the Lord Jesus. And interestingly, the one person who wasn't a hypocrite, who never trusted in external things, who always gave his Father glory and honor, who always did the will of the one who sent him, who always sought his honor and praise and glory, that one was nailed to a tree for all of our self-seeking. All of our self That's where Paul's moving. Get that. Paul's moving there. The question is, when we examine our lives, are we depending on him, have we taken all that self-seeking to him? Are we trusting in him? And are we saying, Lord Jesus, make me like you. I don't want to be self-seeking. I want to be God-seeking. I want to be Christ-seeking. I don't want to be people-pleasing. I don't want to be external religion-seeking. I don't want to be pleasure-seeking in lawlessness. I don't want any of that. Um, In the gospel, you have all the power and all the grace and all the righteousness that you need from Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our God, we do ask that you would help us to take these things, to sift through them, to go to your word to see if they are so. We pray, Father, that you would make us a people who delight to serve you in the inner man, that you would give us your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we would seek praise from you and not from men, that you would tear away from us any dependence on formality, any thinking that we are better because of what we know. We pray, Father, that you would humble us when we look at the cross, that you would bring us to our knees in repentance and that you would comfort us with the good news of what we have in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.